As we begin this morning, I'd like to uh, read a few verses from the 20th Psalm. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him or her from his holy heaven with the strength, saving strength, of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord, may the King answer us in the day we call. King with a capital K, meaning our Lord in heaven. Father, this is a day in which we call upon you, as I trust each of us does every day, knowing that it is only from you that comes saving help. Lord, we need you every hour. We need your strength. We know that uh, we are to be stayed upon Jehovah, the one who is the solid rock. And Father, we know that you are sufficient for our every need. What we need from you, Lord, though each day is increased faith to believe that you hear and answer our prayers, that even though we may not see uh, <clears throat> answers on the horizon, we know that in your time and in your way, the answers will come because we know, Lord, that it is your desire to build up your church, to keep each of us um, strong in our faith in you and serving you effectively. Lord, I thank you for the mothers, the grandmothers, the great-grandmothers in this uh, room today, and I pray your special blessing upon each one. I thank you, Lord, for the gift that you give to us in mothers who, who love and care for their children and who have raised them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And Father, we know that uh, uh, as we look forward now to this day and all that it will hold, that your presence will be with us and you will bless. Guide us, Lord, in our study of your word today. Bless as the message is proclaimed this hour as well. And we'll thank you for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in the 23rd chapter of 2 Samuel. And we're at verse 18. 2 Samuel 23, 18. Abishai, brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the 30. And he swung his spear against 300 and killed them and had a name as well as the three. He was most honored of the 30, therefore he became their commander. However, he did not attain unto the three. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done mighty deeds, killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, impressive, an impressive man. Now the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the <clears throat> Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and had a name as well as the three mighty men. He was honored amongst the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. David appointed him over his guard. To the uninitiated in the truth of Scripture, that might seem like an interesting uh, little story, but not have a whole lot of uh, spiritual insight or uh, uplift to it. But when you look at it and think about it within the context of all of Scripture and what God has done, 
uh, you see that uh, victory is in the hands of God's people. In this chapter, the 23rd chapter, we began with a psalm. And we looked at that psalm. It's the last of the psalms that David would write. And then the chapter moves into this account, this, this listing of David's mighty men. And last week we looked at the three, as they were called, the top three. Joshab, who was one of them, Eliezer, who was the second, and Shammah, who was the third. And, and these were the, the, the greatest of, of those who served under David. And, and several statements are made of what these men had done, how many of the enemy they had defeated, and, and what great exploits they had uh, done, even to the place of one man holding a whole field against a whole army, it seems. Such a thought is incredible to us. You know, how, how can that possibly be? We have, to, we have to see in this the fact that God was at work because in several of the passages, as we noted last time, as it says at the end of verse 12, the Lord brought about a great victory. The Lord brought about a great victory. So these may have been mighty men, but they were only mighty because God was with them. God was in them. Sure, there's a certain extent to which human strength alone can prevail for a little while against other human strength, but it's only supernatural strength that can give victory uh, against odds such as these which are listed here. As I mentioned last time, we're not talking about somebody who was uh, maybe by himself, but he, but he had you know, automatic equipment. He had machine guns and he had hand grenades and RPGs and other kinds of things. We're talking about guys who fought with hand equipment, <coughs> swords and spears, just like the enemy. So he wasn't equipped in any better way than the enemy. And so it wasn't technology that gave these men's vic men victory, it was God. And after talking about the three, we, in this passage you read this morning, we, we discover there are another two who are separated out from the crowd. And they are called mighty men as well, and, and their names are Abishai and Benaiah. And remember, Abishai is the brother of Joab. And that's uh, made a point here. What is interesting is that Joab is never mentioned except incidentally in this entire chapter. He is mentioned as the brother of Abishai, and, and later on in, um, I think it's verse 37, he is also mentioned as the one for whom uh, Naharai was the arms bearer. So Joab is only incidentally mentioned throughout this whole passage of the mighty men. Why is he not separated out? Why is he not the first of them all? Why is he not, uh, why are, why are the, the great exploits that Joab did not listed here. Well, I, I think one of the possible reasons is that it's assumed that since he is commander-in-chief, what other acclaim does he need? He has been the commander-in-chief. He's the, the five-star general at the head of, uh, of David's army. So, so what, you know, what, what great statements of victory attached to his name need to be said? The other possibility, of course, is that he was always in bad you know, he, he was in Dutch with David a great deal. And he kept uh, violating David's word. And we don't know of any exploits that he did other than, you know, kind of uh, sneaky assassinations. You know, he was pretty good at that. Maybe there weren't any great exploits. Uh, his claim to fame originally was the fact that he was the oldest of the cousins of David. 
David's uh, sister, uh, not cousin, uh, uh, nephew, uh, because it's David's sister, Zeruiah, who's the mother of these three boys of Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And so we, we don't know exactly why it is David, uh, Joab is not listed here. But we are told that Abishai is the chief of the 30. He didn't quite rank up with the three, but he ranked high enough to be given command of the, the elite 30. And he was known for his exploits, and, and they're listed there for you. And one of them was special honor for having killed 300 soldiers with a spear. The implication is that he killed 300 soldiers with a spear, with a spear in a single battle, not accumulated all through his life which of course would be a mighty deed. How does one man kill 300 of the enemy with a spear in a single battle or even, in, even if it were more than one battle without himself dying in, in this kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat? If you ever study the history of warfare, one of the things you discover is that through most of history, a warfare had no, very little glory attached to it, uh, especially if you were a frontline soldier. Because, I mean, you're talking about nose-to-nose -nose combat. I mean, you're close enough to not only see the color of the enemy's eyes, but to poke his eyes out. Uh, you know, it's, you're, you're at a very close range. So what are your chances of surviving very middle, many battles of that kind of conflict? Not, not much, which is one of the reasons there weren't very many old soldiers. <laughs> not many who retired. Not many who had to be, even in the Roman legions, uh, given a, a full retirement. There were some. But compared to the number who would be recruited into the army, the number was relatively small. So, so what we have to see here is that Abishai did not win these, this victory by human strength alone, but by the might and power of God Almighty. He was stayed upon Jehovah, if you will. The second outstanding man mentioned in this second group. You have the three, now you have the two, but the two are in the thirty. You, do we get the picture? <laughs> you have the three. They seem to be outside of the 30. But inside the 30, you have two who stand out from the rest of the 30. We're going to see that the number 30 doesn't really mean exactly 30. The second most outstanding men, man within the 30, a man of great valor, was Benaiah, whose name meant Yahweh builds. What we discover is that he was from a village way in the extreme uh, southwest, way down in this part of Judah. Here's, here's Judea, Judea, as it's called here. Judah, tribe of Judah was in here. And he was way down in here, right next to the border with Edom. Edom is the country south of the Zared here. And so he, he, had, he was in a village way down over here. So he was way off in the edge of his country. But nevertheless, from that small, distant town, he becomes one of the great men of, uh, of David's army. What we discover here is that he, his exploits included the killing of two Ariels, or sons of Ariel, it might say. The uh, Hebrew here seems to indicate that he killed these two Ariels. Now, Ariel in um, Hebrew or seems to come out of uh, Moabitic, Moabitic uh, language. Uh, means the lion of God. And so these two lions of God, what this seems to mean is that 
he himself took on two of the champions of Moab, lion-like men. Most of you are familiar with Richard III of England, Gur de Lyon, the lion-hearted. Well, these are sort of men of that stature, lion-hearted men, uh, the, the leading champions of Moab. And it seems that Benea killed them possibly in a single combat, slaying the two champions of Moab. It's interesting, the NIV translates that he struck down two of Moab's best men. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Dynamic equivalent. Yeah. <laughs> Must not be too far off, then. Right. And, and here's Moab over here. So on, on the east side of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River here, you had the Ammonites up here, the Moabites down here, and the Edomites down here. And again, remember, they were all closely related to Israel, biologically. They were all descendants of, well, Edom is from Esau, right? Esau was Jacob's brother. And Moab and Ammon were uh, the Ammonites were the descendants of uh, Lot by his own daughter, by Lot having sexual relationship with his own daughter, produced Moab and Adam and, and Ammon. And so these are closely related but enemy nations to Israel. We also are told that he went down and killed a lion in a snowy pit. And we think, <laughs> okay, why does it tell us that? Well, I, th I think the point is that he slew this lion similarly to the way David slew the lion. In other words, he didn't stand on the edge of the pit and shoot it with an M16, you know. He went down into the pit with hand-to-hand -hand combat, probably bare hands, uh, to kill this lion. For what reason, we don't know. You know I, I, was it just a test of strength? I don't think so. There, there was a reason this lion needed to be killed, and he was able to kill that particular lion. But we're also told that he fought an Egyptian of great stature. Now in this particular passage it just tells us that he was, that, that the uh, Egyptian was an impressive man. But if you go to First Chronicles, we're told that it, he was five cubits tall. Well, a cubit, we don't exactly know how long a cubit was in the uh, ancient world. Uh, very conservatively, a cubit was 18 inches. So that would be the shortest, the shortest a cubit would be. Some say a cubit was 21 inches, some say it was 24 inches. It depends on what time, I suppose, what time period you're dealing with. So the guy was at least seven foot six, and he could have been eight foot six, uh, somewhere in there. He was a big guy. Now, I, I know that those of us who are used to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and this, this new Chinese guy who's seven foot six or whatever he is, seven five, you know, that, that doesn't seem as great. But you have to think about the fact there weren't people like that in this day that we're talking about. And the average Israelite was very, very small in this particular time. You know, when, when, when uh, Saul was said to be head and shoulders above everybody else, he was probably about six foot, you know, because the typical Israelite in that day was male was probably between five foot and five foot six at the most. So it would seem even bigger, you know, to these particular individuals. But what's interesting is that this Egyptian was armed with a spear and for some reason Benea only had a staff with him, a club it says. He, he didn't have any other weapons. Now why he was without a weapon we don't know. But he goes up against this Egyptian and somehow he gets this Egyptian spear away from the Egyptian and kills him with his own spear. <laughs> 
Kind of like David taking a rock and knocking over Goliath and cutting off Goliath's head with Goliath's own spear, spear, uh, sword. And, and so this is the, the, the situation that we, we find here. What we do discover is that Benaiah was such a, an impressive man, even though he was amongst the 30 and not amongst the top three, that David gave him the leadership over his bodyguard, the Pelethites and the Carathites, this special group of, of troops, sort of like the Green Berets, I suppose you might say. And Benaiah was given command over them. And we are going to discover later on that Solomon will make Benaiah commander-in-chief of all the Israeli forces, or I should use the word Israelite. Um, some people today get really, really uptight if you use the word Israeli for this period of time because that's, of course, the modern name for the people over there. And it, it creates a problem for some people. Verses 24 to 39 list the 30. The remaining individuals besides Abishai and Benaiah who made up this elite core of David's original 600 men. There are no distinguishing feats listed by their names are just given. You know, Shama the Herodite, Elika the Herodite. It, it just gives their names. Now, remembering in those days, and this would last for much, much longer in history than the time we're talking about. In fact, it goes through most of history. That there was no such thing as a surname as we think of it today. So people were usually identified as being Ben somebody, son of somebody, or they're, uh, they're connected to a clan, a tribe, or a location. Uh, it, we see this much later in time. For example, in, in English history, as late as the Middle Ages, you have William of Ockham. Ockham is a town not too far from London. This is William from that town. Well, you know, today, if you were called uh, George from Reading, well, that wouldn't be too very specific because there might quite be quite a few Georges <laughs> in Reading. But when you're talking about a small village, and uh, this is somebody famous from the village, why, everybody knows who you're talking about. But eventually, of course, surnames do come into use, but, but there, is, there are no surnames at the time we're talking about uh, here. And so you just have their name plus their clan name or some kind of a son of somebody or uh, a location attached uh, to them. This passage tells us, as you get further down in the passage, at the very end of the passage, in fact, it says 37 in all. 37 in all. If you turn to 1 Chronicles, to the passage there in the 21st chapter, which is the parallel passage to this, we won't do that, but if you were, you would discover that the same list has 46 names in it. In fact, it has a, a kind of a indeterminate name also because one of them, one of the those in the list is the sons, plural, of Hashem the Gilanite. So how many sons are we talking about? Are we talking about two brothers, three brothers? So the First Chronicles passage has a minimum of 47, possibly 48 individuals in it. So you have 37 in 2 Samuel, you have uh, 46 or 47 in First Chronicles. So what does that mean? Well, I think it means two things. First of all, the term the 30 was a title. It was the name of, of, of a core of individuals. 
and it probably derived from the approximate number of the original members, but was more of a statement of status and prowess than of exact number of the people in the group. One of the things you discover as you go through the Bible, you'll discover many, many numbers are given rounded to a whole number. 30, 40, 50, no, 30 years for this, 40 years for that. Well, was it exactly 30 years? Was it 29 years? Was it 32 years? They, they tend to round numbers off. Even in the New Testament, uh, Dr. Walmart can, can correct me here, but when, when it talks about Jesus, it implies that he is around 30. It doesn't say he's specifically 30 years of age when he began his ministry. In fact, if we think of the, the, the studies that have been made about when the birth of Christ would have occurred, we, we find that the birth of Christ had to occur at least in 4 or 5 B.C. to kind of fit what we know about the historical record. And, and therefore, if, di if he died in the 15th year of Tiberius, which pushes you up to at least 28, 29, 30, somewhere in there, I mean, Jesus was in his mid-30s, maybe as old as 37 when he was crucified. And so this, this is not a number that specifically means there were exactly 30 individuals. Count them, you know, count off, guys, one, two, three, four, five, and you come to 30. Secondly, uh, the list probably doesn't include all of the men who served at any one time. It probably is a more inclusive list than that. It probably includes those who had served at one time but then were killed, or some who may retired, some who came later, especially the First Chronicles list, which gives us probably at least 47 men. Now, we know this is true partly because the list includes Asahel. The list includes Asahel. This list is given in, in, in the second Samuel passage, towards the end of David's reign. Well, Asahel was killed before David even became king of all Israel. And we also discover that the list also mentions Uriah the Hittite. We all know what happened to Uriah the Hittite, right? Uriah the Hittite was killed in the first half of David's reign. So he wasn't still one of the 30 at the end of David's reign. And so we're dealing with a title. If you, 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 you can say the elite, if you want, instead of the 30. And it's just an approximate number of individuals. What is interesting is that the list also includes some foreigners. Now, you don't see it specified here in, in 2 Samuel, but if you read in the First Chronicles passage, it tells us that there not only was Uriah the Hittite, but there was an Ammonite and also a Moabite. That was in the 30. Huh? A Moabite and an Ammonite? These are bad guys, right? That would be like having a military unit uh, in our army made up of Iraqis <laughs> from the U.S. Or Afghans. What's interesting is that one of the most unlikely men to be in this list is, is found again in, well, I see, as his name. Yeah, his name is, well, his name is, is mentioned here in verse 34. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Now, you remember him, right? Everybody remembers Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. <laughs> well, what we remember about him is that he had a very famous daughter. Her name was Bathsheba. And you remember Ahithophel? Ahithophel was David's chief advisor who went over to Absalom. 
and joined Absalom's rebellion. And so here you have Eliam, one of the 30 of the mighty men of David, whose daughter David had stolen from the proper husband and whose father had rebelled against David. And yet, as far as we can tell, he is still loyal to David. Well, this brings us to the 24th chapter, which is the last chapter of the book of 2 Samuel. And in this chapter, we have the story of David's last great failure. <laughs> is this a word of encouragement? That even when you're old and you got one foot in the grave and the other in the banana peel, you can sin? I remember listening, as most of you do, because you can still hear him even though he's been dead for nigh on to 20 years. J. Vernon McGee, yes. And here's this, old, this, this elderly man speaking on the radio and he's talking about the fact he needs God's forgiveness every single day. You know, he's one of the more honest individuals I've, uh, I've heard. And so here we have David, towards the end of his life, to the end of his career, making a big mistake. And yet we find also a great triumph that comes out of this. God causes us every day to triumph. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are failing. And yet he lifts us up and uses us for his glory. So let's look at the first nine verses of the 24th chapter. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of the Lord, uh, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Arar on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad towards Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of, the ta of ta tim Hadshi, <laughs> And they came to Danjan around Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. And they went out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone about through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. This chapter begins with a mystery. Why was the Lord angry with Israel? We find in that first verse, the second word, in fact, of the verse is the word again. <laughs> now again, the Lord was angry at Israel. And I think the again, its immediate precedent was, is, is to go back to 2 Samuel 21. We won't do it. But in the first two verses of 2 Samuel chapter 21, we find the Lord sending a famine on the land of Israel because, the, because Saul had violated the treaty that had been made between Israel and the Gibeonites, the Hivites. Okay? 
You remember that story. We talked about it. The primary purpose of this passage seems to be to highlight David's failure here, David's sin. And therefore, the reason for God's anger is not stated, although I think it's implied, and I'll mention what I think it's about in a minute. The first verse of this passage seems to indicate that it was the Lord's demonstration of his anger that incited David to choose to number Israel, to call for a census. But what is interesting is, if you go to the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles, the, cha the 21st chapter, the first verse, it takes us behind the scenes. And there the writer says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So whatever David's excuse was, what he was doing was yielding to satanic temptation in carrying out this census. In the 21st chapter of 1 Chron Chronicles, the first two chapters, or, or, or the first part of that chapter, is very similar to the first two chapters of the book of Job in that they help you to see behind the scene. Just think what we wouldn't know if there was no book of Job in our Bible. Yeah? We wouldn't know that, that God and Job sometimes had conferences together. Not God and Job, but God and Satan. And, and that Satan came and, and accused the brethren and that Satan asked permission to do this, that, and the other thing, and he could only do it if God gave him permission. Which helps us to understand that dualistic faiths totally miss the point. When you have a God of light and a God of darkness, and they're co-equal in battling each other. We don't have that in Christianity. Satan is not co-equal to God. He is vastly inferior. God could wipe him out with, with his breath. He has to get permission in order to attack God's people. And God will only give Satan permission to attack God's people if it will be, first of all, to the glory of God, and second of all, if it will result in good for His people. Now we might say, Oh Lord, I can't think of any time when Satan's attack is going to bring good. But you read the book of Job. And Job lost everything. And yet in the end, God heaped upon him much more than he ever had before. Did that eradicate his loss? No. But, but it shows how God can not only compensate, but do far beyond what we have lost as a result of the attack of the enemy. David ordered Joab, the supreme military commander of Israel, to take a census of all Israel from Dan to Beersheba. That is a geographical phrase which is not supposed to mean, an ex it's not to be an exclusive statement. Dan is here and Beersheba is down here. Between Dan and Beersheba, west of the Jordan River, in other words, if you were to draw a box sort of like this, you have about 6,000 square miles. The passage, however, clearly tells us that the first place that Joab went was across the Jordan into Gilead. He began the numbering over here in Gilead. The passage also tells us that he went to the north and he, not, he, he numbered the people in the hinterland of Tyre and Sidon. 
here's Tyre, here's Sidon. So if you were to add in the territory over here and the territory north of Dan over to the coast, excepting the actual coast itself, which was still under Phoenician control, you have nearly another 5,000 square miles of land. So Dan de Beersheba is only to be taken as a euphemism for Israel, for the heart of Israel, but not to be exclusive of all Israel, because much of Israel uh, was beyond Dan to Beersheba. In fact, almost twice as much, I mean, almost as much land again as was between those two territories. So he numbered all the way from Beersheba in the south, all the way over in here, and all the way up to here. So it was this large area here that was numbered. And it already is broken down into two units. You'll notice that the numbering is of Israel and of Judah. That is not yet uh, broken. I mean, that, that hasn't been the political breakup into those two units hasn't occurred yet. Even though David did serve as king over Judah before he was king over all Israel. But already there, you, you read of the, of the difference here of Judah down here and of Israel being all the rest. And, and the numbering is made of those two groups. And what do we find? 1.3 million men. Men? Just period? Men? All males? No. Men of military age, the implication is healthy men of military age. In other words, men that had all their arms and all their legs and all their toes and were mentally sufficient and were probably between the ages of about uh, 16, 17, 18, and uh, you know, 40 or 50. So when you think about that, you can figure, okay, you got 1.3 million. Those older and those younger than that age would probably be another 1.3 million, and then you double that for women. You know, you got 2.6, 5.2 million as the total population, roughly, maybe. That's as many Jews as live in Israel today. Now, the whole empire was much larger, of course, because it included a lot of non-Jews all the way up to the Euphrates River. So probably the total population was two, three, four times that number. We have no real knowledge of what that might be, but David probably had an empire of 10 to 20 million altogether under his rule, roughly. Now, modern-day Israel has a population of just, you know, little, between six and seven million, of which at least a million are Christian Arabs, or some of them are Muslims, but a lot of them are Christian Arabs. Um, so there were as many Israelites in David's kingdom as there are today in modern Israel. Well, we're going to discover as we look at this passage that Joab is not keen on doing this, not only because it's a 10-month job that he wasn't counting on doing, being gone from home for 10 months doing all this counting, but there was something sinister behind it. And David will later admit to that. And this is, in, in this is the great sin. We can say, what kind of sin can there be in just counting the people? You know, how sinful is it to say one, two, three, four, five? Well, we'll talk about that next time.